The title of this sermon is The Kingdom is a Gift. The Kingdom is a Gift. 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm reading out of the ESV this morning. It says this. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words... And in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. In the last verse, verse 18, then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Jesus, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your uh, Old Testament scriptures that prepare us for your coming, for the one who would crush the serpent, the one who would bless all the nations, the one who would establish his throne forever and ever. And so, Lord, I ask that uh, this morning as we just pause for a moment, as we sit at your feet, as we study your word, that Holy Spirit, you would breathe that life of your word into our souls, that you would correct us, Lord. I know that many of us may have many plans. Would we be submitted to you? And Lord, would 
you uh, remind us of who you are and what you have promised to do, and your promises are sure and they're certain, and they always come to pass. And so we can trust you this morning. And above all, would you just show us Jesus? We want to fall more in love with Jesus and worship Jesus and be more faithful to Jesus. So would you help us this morning? Would you help us, this little flock, where we're afraid, where we're fearful? Would we right now just be still? and feed on your word. Would you revive and restore our souls? Would you encourage us? Would you strengthen us for what you have? It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so this story, 2 Samuel chapter 7, this happens at the, the height of the reign of King David. If you remember King David, he's Israel's greatest king. He was a man after God's own heart. He killed Goliath in his youth. He was a military leader under King Saul. He wrote uh, the majority of the Psalms in the Bible. He, he was living and ruling around 1000 BC. He was really like right in between the person of Abraham and Jesus. He was like the link in the Old Testament from the beginning to Jesus. And throughout the history of the church, it has been said that what we just read, these, the, these 17 verses specifically are the climax of David's life and the kingdom of Israel, that, that these verses are even the climax of the entire Old Testament, that the Old Testament like summit is here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. As we will see, uh, Israel will enjoy that summit for about a generation, and then it just goes downhill from there. And it just gets Israel longing for the fulfillment of these promises and these prophecies. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 is the greatest uh, speech of Yahweh since he spoke to Moses when he gave Moses the law. This is the most amount of words directly from God we have since God spoke to Moses. And the words in this chapter, the promises in this chapter would literally sustain the people of God for a thousand years as they waited for the Messiah, as they waited for a king. King David's actual earthly kingdom was significant. It, he had one of his sons on a throne in Jerusalem for about 400 years. That's impressive uh, as far as like earthly kingdoms go. You know, the United States has not been around that long. And one family was ruling Israel for 400 years. So that's, that's impressive. But the day did come when Israel was captured and the people of God went into exile. That throne was taken apart. It was taken into some other nation. Other kings are sitting on it. There was no longer a son of David on the throne. And for about five to 600 years, the people of God relied on these promises that there would still come another king who would reestablish the throne of David, who would provide a place for the people of God, who would provide rest for them from their enemies that they could worship God freely. These promises sustained the people of God. Now, this, this happens at the, kind of the, towards the end of David's life, actually. He has uh, been successful over his military campaigns, his kingdoms far and wide, he's king over all the tribes. Uh, look again at verse one, it just sums up when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest 
from all his surrounding enemies. Like this, this is the, the thing we all like long for. Like he arrived, he did it, he's successful, he's just enjoying his kingdom. Uh, commentators think this is maybe within the last 10 years of his life. Like this is the, the climax, the end of his life. But something doesn't feel quite right to David. Something doesn't feel quite right. Like he's, he's enjoying everything, but something isn't quite right. And look, look what he says in verse two. The king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. David's just enjoying this beautiful house of cedar that was built for him. And then every morning, David would leave this amazing house, this dream house, and he would walk over to this old, raggedy, goatskin tent that the ark of God rests in, and he would worship his God. He'd get up and wipe all the dust off of him, and then he would walk back to his palace, and he just thought to himself, this isn't right. That like, who am I that I would live in this house and God would live in a tent? And so he tells Nathan the prophet, hey, Nathan, this just can't be right. This can't be the way to honor God. I live in this house. God lives in this ghetto, 100-year-old, tearing tent. Like, this can't be right. And so Nathan the prophet responds in verse 3. Look what he says. Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, this is where things begin to get off for David and for Nathan. Uh, Here's where the title of our sermon comes into play, that the kingdom of God is a gift. But here, the beginning of this chapter, we see two godly men beginning to think that maybe God needed them and their gifts to build his kingdom. They see the house of God as just this tent, and they think, you know what? God could really use us. I think we really have something to offer God and his kingdom. Why don't we throw God a bone? Why don't we give God a gift? Why don't we build God a better house? And so we get to uh, the first of three characteristics of the kingdom of God that we're going to see this morning. And the first one is this. In the kingdom of God, our plans are not always God's plans. Can I get an amen to that? (laughs) We have all painfully experienced what David is about to experience. Look with me again at verse four and five. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Now, uh, haven't we experienced our plans, even our good plans? Like, man, wouldn't God just be so blessed if I did this? And, and, and haven't we experienced, for some reason, our dreams and plans, even for the Lord, like not coming to pass. Honestly, nearly every plan, every major plan I've made for my life over the past 10 years, not a single one has come even close to what I figured this, was, this would be a good thing if I were to do this. 
And what makes it even more difficult is when those plans are good. And those plans are for the honor and the glory of God. When we think it would be good for God and his kingdom if this was to happen. And it seems from all we know of David that he had the best of intentions here. He was honestly troubled and disturbed that God would be dwelling in this tent while he had this house. We know that David has always been concerned about the name and the glory of God. When he defeated Goliath, he was upset because the name of the Lord was being, you know, rucked in, like being ran in the mud. Like, no, you can't do that to God. I'm going to defend God. He has always had like this, this like concern that God, that Yahweh would look good. When the ark was captured under King Saul, the first thing David did was like, we got to get that thing back. Let's go recover the ark of God. We know David is concerned with the glory and the name of God. However, we, with David, cannot assume our good intentions are always what God has for us and for his kingdom. And we should even be humbled here to see that the most godly people, King David, a man after God's own heart, the prophet Nathan, can make godly plans. And yet these very people and plans could not be what the Lord has. And, and how much more should we humbly you know, submit our plans before God? If King David and Nathan could be wrong, how much more should we consider even our best plans? may not be God's plans. And that, this is actually a theme throughout First and Second Samuel. We see that godly people can be misguided. You remember uh, the high priest Eli, one of the first high priests? And one day he was in the, t- the temple doing his thing and he saw this woman weeping uh, before God and he thought, man, this woman's drunk. Let me just chastise her for drinking. And really it was Hannah crying out to God for a child. Like, yeah, you, you kind of missed it there, Eli's bad pastoral moment. Uh, or think about Samuel as he was convinced that d- that. Uh, Jesse's oldest son was first, this had to be the next king of Israel. This man who was strong and tall and gifted, certainly this was the one God had for his people. We see all throughout these books and the Bible that our plans and our ways and our values are not always God's ways and not always God's plans and not always God's values. And did you notice what was lacking in the plans of David and Nathan. Did you notice one glaring thing that was just missing? It was prayer. Neither man stopped for a moment to seek God for what he would have. Uh, Eugene Peterson, the uh, author of the message, uh, wrote with his tongue in cheek, he he wrote this about, about David and Nathan, he said this, he announces his building plans to his pastor, the prophet Nathan, and gets his approval and blessing. There are times when circumstances are so clear and obvious and our motives so selfless and pure that it hardly seems necessary to pray. And so, of course, neither David nor Nathan prays. At that moment, the sanctuary is as good as built. Like, of course, this is what God wants. My heart's pure. We're godly men. 
This is for the glory of God. Let's do this. This is that at that moment it was as good as built. And yet, as as David and Nathan were to find out, and as we have all found out, God makes it clear one way or another whose plans we are really pursuing. And it usually involves pain. It usually involves some kind of confrontation when God just shuts it down. And, and so I want to ask us together as the people of God, what plans are you currently making? And what decisions are you current, like what decisions are on the table for you right now? <clears throat> and I want to encourage all of us to learn from these godly but misguided men to, to, to go slow and to seek the Lord to genuinely pray and ask God, what would you have for me? Uh, as a church, we, we want to do that in this season coming the new year. We are going to provide more times of prayer as a church where we can seek God for, for our church in this season and where the Lord would have us. Uh, I'm, I'm sure all of us have our good intentions and our good plans that if only we did this, this, and this, you know, God's kingdom and church would be thriving. And so why aren't we doing it? And so together we need to humble ourselves and be still before God and say, Lord, what would you have? And is there a chance that my plans are not your plans? Uh, another thing that this practically highlights for us is this. Every person who has walked with God, likely every person, has faced at one time or another to varying degrees uh, disappointment with God. Imagine the end of that conversation. Nathan and David, we're going to do this for God. This is going to be amazing. This has never been done before. We're going to bring the kingdom of God here. And so they go and, and then... In 24 hours, that entire thing just falls apart. Imagine what, you would, what David would feel like. What are you doing, Lord? Like, these are, these are good plans. And like David, we have all likely heard a no to our prayers and plans from God. We have all likely had uh, desires, even dreams fall apart. Uh, we have all faced loss and we have all faced change. Many of us are still waiting on an answer from God. Uh, maybe some of us, like David, have even had ministry dreams that have not yet come to fruition or, or even like completely fell apart. Uh, this week as I was studying this text, one pastor I was reading reminded me that though this is so important, because how do we deal with these disappointments? And here's, here's the key. Though God may say no to our plans, he never says no to us as persons. That's so important. Though God may say no to our plans, he, he never says no to his kids as persons. And look at how God speaks to, uh, to and of David in verse five. It says this, go and tell, look what he says, my servant David. First he says he's mine. He's my servant. Yeah, he's, he can be an idiot, but he's mine. He's my servant. He belongs to me. And you know what? He uh, may be misguided in how he wants to serve me, but do you know what else? 
He's still my servant. I still want to use him. He may be off in this area, but he is my servant. And I still have plans for my servant. I don't sideline my servants when uh, things don't go according to their plans. He is mine and he is my servant. And even better than that, you guys, we are God's kids. We are his children. If we've been born again and we can know that he will never forsake us and we will always remain his, uh, even as we stumble about in our plan making and as, and as our dreams and whatnot maybe don't completely fall into place. And as we see uh, in what God goes on to say to David, uh, this is so important. We will all receive many disappointing no's from God, but this is so important. We receive absolutely far more yeses than we will ever receive no's. And that gets us to our next point of the kingdom of God, and it's this. In the kingdom of God, we are the recipients, and God is the giver. In God's kingdom, we are the recipients, and God is the giver. Again, look, what, what got David wrong is he's like, Do you know what? I think God needs to receive a little something from me. I think I'm going to like be the giver in this relationship. And God kind of puts David in his place. He says, no, that's not how it works, actually. You, David, are going to receive from me. And what God goes on to do in the rest of this section is, is proclaim some of the most astonishing promises and blessings on David, even as that sting of that no is like st- still being felt by him. And so look first at verses six and seven. Look what God says to David. He says, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God is first pointing out that he is God. He doesn't need a house, and he's never needed a house. As if a creature could provide a house for the creator. <laughs> That's ridiculous. It's, it's absurd. Uh, as Stephen, you remember Stephen, the first Christian martyr, says later in Acts chapter 7, verse 48 through 50, yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? God is reminding David who it is he's talking to. Uh, David, I'm God. I never needed a house. Remember that time when I delivered like millions of people from the most powerful nation? Like, did I need a house to go sleep in at night so I could go to work the next? Like, that's not how it works. And God is reminding every one of us who wants to walk with him that he is not a needy God. He is not a God who is desperate for your gifts and your help. Man, we just, we gotta be humble for a moment. 
and recognize God needs nothing. He is the giver. His kingdom is a gift. Everything we have is a gift from him. And then goes on to remind David, this, at this moment, this powerful king, who he really was and where he came from. Look what God says to him in verse 8 through 9. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, that you, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. He's reminding this great king, hey, David, remember when you were following sheep around? Remember when you used to follow sheep? It's because of me that now you are leading my people. And I have been with you, David, from the beginning. And the reason you are the leader of my people is because of me, because I took you as that shepherd boy, and I sustained you and protected you and preserved you and cut off all of your enemies and have elevated you to this place. And in fact, he's reminding David, as he does to every one of us, why does God choose us? Simply to display God's grace and his love and his mercy. He intentionally chooses people like us. So it is clear that God is the good one in the relationship, that God is the gracious one in the relationship. You see, God could have chosen David's older brother, and everyone would have said, well, that makes sense. And the older brother could have said, you know, I really deserve this. I earned this. But he chose David, the youngest forgotten son, who was doing the lowest job you could in that society so that God could display his great mercy and grace to David. David was chosen not because he was the, the clear human choice. He was chosen by grace. And God wanted to remind David of that. David, remember, you have been receiving from me from day one. And this is helpful for us as well because often we may be tempted to think what God needs from us is to get our act together before he would ever choose us and use us. And we see time and time again in the scriptures, it's just the opposite. He intentionally chooses the least so that he can display his mercy and his glory. He chooses ordinary people with ordinary backgrounds so that it is so clear, wow, this is a work of God. This, these people in this room, this is a miracle. This is a work of God. This can't be explained by anything other than the grace of God of God. And what that means for us is we don't need to, as, as the world needs to, hide our weaknesses. In fact, we can be honest about them and receive God's grace for them. And God even says uh, through Paul that he loves to use us in those areas of weakness, not necessarily those areas of natural human gifting or popularity or power, so that God would get the glory. And so then God moves on. He says, David, remember who I am. Remember who you are. And then what he does is he, he, he stops looking at the past, and then he, he begins to make some of the most uh, important promises for the future. And look what God says to David. We'll pick it up in verse 9, and we'll read through verse 11. 
I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make for you a house. You know, David had to hear the disappointing no. He was not to build the temple for God, and that temple would be built by Solomon, his son. God tells David, first, David, I'm going to make your name great. I, I thank you, David, you are concerned for my name, but I'm actually going to make your name great, David. And I'm going to, through you, provide this promised land for my people. And I'm going to give you, David, and, and my people rest from their enemies. And then I'm going to build up your house, your family, David. And, and this is so true. The more we walk with God and even the more knows we hear from God, it becomes clear that the blessings don't, they don't compare to the knows. That what God has promised to do for us is incomparable with the knows that we have heard that he is going to provide a place for us, that he is going to be with us and deliver us from our enemies, that God is the one fighting for us, that we are not on our own to make our own name great and secure our own place and deliver ourselves. In, in these 17 verses, God is the one acting 23 times. Our God is a giver. And when we come to him, he does become our master and Lord, and we surrender everything to him. But what we receive in return is just blessing upon blessing. As John says, grace upon grace. And as God is making these promises to David about his future house, what God is also doing, that's on, like, on a specific level, he's like, David, I'm going to take care of you. On a, on a high level, God is establishing what's known as the Davidic covenant, which is, which is like the next major chain in the link from Adam to Abraham to David to Jesus. And these are some of the promises that, again, will sustain the people of God through many dark times. And so God says, I'm going to take care of you, David, but I'm also going to provide for my people. And it's profound. Look at verse 8. Notice, notice the word God uses at the end, how he describes David. He doesn't call him king. What does he call him? He says, you should be prince over my people. And what he's getting at here is that, yes, David may be the greatest king Israel ever has, but there's another king coming. And when, he, when compared to that king, David is just a prince. David was, was just one king of whom the, the king of kings would rule over. And as David was just a simple shepherd, we know that a future son of David would later be called the chief shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep. 
And as David was the unlikely choice to be the king of Israel, a future son of David would, would also be so unlikely a king that he would enter into Jerusalem on a donkey and a week later he would end his life, his 33-year-old life, naked and hanging on a cross. Here in these promises to David, we're hearing hints of how God intends to give his people his kingdom, that there's another one coming. And then God gets even more specific in the rest of these verses, in verses 12 to 16. And that leads us to the third characteristic of the kingdom of God, and it's this. The coming of the kingdom of God is certain. It's certain. It will happen. It will happen. Again, let's just read what God says to David, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So many I wills and I shalls. And God makes a covenant with David. And what God does here is he essentially says three things. This is so important. He says, David, my covenant with you is so sure, it's so certain, you can put your hope in it to the extent that this, death will not defeat it, sin does not annul it, and time does not exhaust it. That's what he says. It will happen. Death is not gonna defeat it. David, you're gonna die soon. You will die. And your son will die. And your son's son will die. You will lay in the grave. However, I will raise up a king who will rise from the dead and conquer death itself and will rule on a throne forever and ever. And do you know what? Anyone who would put their trust in Jesus would also rise from the dead and rule with Jesus and David in his kingdom forever. Death does not defeat it. And then he goes on to say, and you know what? Sin does not annul it. Look at verse 14. He speaks of the, in this moment, the direct son of David, that's Solomon. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men. Listen, in I think it's four chapters David goes on a sin fest. And we see David's son just picks up that pattern, has over a thousand wives and concubines and begins worshiping all kinds of other gods. Like the sin that creeps into this kingdom is unfathomable. Like when you read the rest of the Bible, you, you think, how, how, are we even, how, how are we even here? How did God not forsake his people? This is unbelievable, the sin of God's people and the sin of his rulers and his kings. And do you know what God says, though? Even your sin will not stop what I am going to do. He says, I'm going to, 
first of all, I'm going to discipline you because I love you. And you read the rest of uh, the Old Testament, and there's a lot of uh, discipline that you read of. But furthermore, and look at this phrase at the end of verse 14, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Now, that may sound familiar to you. That's referring to like whips. And in, in a prophetic sense, this verse we know is speaking directly to Solomon, who was sinful, but it's also speaking to the greater son of David, who was sinless, Jesus. And Jesus would receive all the discipline and even the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin at the hands of sinful men. And Jesus was whipped and he was beaten and he hung on the cross. This sinless son of God, this sinless son of David. And he ended his life and he rose again that any sinner who would trust in Jesus would never perish, would never be punished for his sins, but would be called a son and daughter of God. Even sin can't stop the promises of God. Even in your life, your sins, they can't stop the promises of God. And if you're a son and daughter of God, you can expect maybe some uh, fatherly discipline coming your way. But it is because he loves you and know this, that Jesus took the wrath of God for you. And you will never suffer the wrath of God that has been removed as far as the east is from the west. You are a beloved son and daughter of God. And if you are in Christ, you will receive this kingdom. And then not only will death not defeat it and sin not annul it, time cannot exhaust it. Uh, As we said, David's kingdom was impressive, 400 years, but it ended. It ended. Uh, His line continued, but there were were to be no more kings sitting on thrones in Jerusalem. But a thousand years later, Jesus would come, would leave his heavenly throne, and would die on the cross and rise again. And now Jesus is seated on the throne of David. And he will continue to sit there, Until, as the word says, his enemies are a footstool under his feet, and he brings in every one of his sons and his daughters, and Jesus will rule forever and ever. And I want to point out something practical here for us about this this aspect of time. Because if you think about it, uh, the people of God waited a thousand years for Jesus after these promises. Um, and the people of God were in exile. They watched the temple be plundered. They, they suffered, and yet they learned to trust in these promises that time will not exhaust the promises of God, that there will come a king. And, and for us specifically, as we all face real uh, trials, in our life, I want to ask you, are you waiting on the Lord? And are you clinging to his promises? And I even want to ask you, if you're like doing okay, do you know those promises? Because we don't know what will come tomorrow. And are you ready with the promises of God in your heart and in your soul for when things fall apart? Are you ready for that? 
Are you ready to wait on the promises of God that no matter what happens in my life, I know the promises of God will come to pass? And I want to say this. I know we as a church are in a season of waiting. And I want to ask us, are we willing to wait, to wait on the Lord, to surrender our hopes, and our plans? Are we seeking him? Are we clinging to his promises? Are we running about fretting over the kingdom of God? Are we able to rest knowing that because Jesus came, a thousand years later, he came. Because Jesus came, God will continue to fill his promises to you and to us. And as surely as Jesus came, he's coming again. He's coming again. And until he comes, we wait and we trust in his promises. Now, uh, verse 17 wraps it up and it says, in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. You know, Nathan had a job. Uh, He had to go into the king, tell him bad news. He had to tell the king, hey, this is what God says. And again, I just want to remind us, are we, are we aware of and submitted to the word of God in this season? Are we willing to say, Lord, whatever you say, this is your kingdom, and I'll trust you, and I will submit to you? Uh, and I also want to say, are we willing to obey the promises of God in the difficult times of waiting? For example, are we willing to pursue grace with one another in this season. Uh, I know how difficult it is when we are waiting or in a difficult spot to be loving and gentle to one another. Um, My wife and I just camped with our six-month-old and two-year-old, and so that entailed like a, what should have been a six-hour drive, it was like a 10-hour drive. And uh, on our way home down the eastern Sierras, the sun is just you know, it's, uh, it, was, it was 112 degrees, and the air conditioning is blasting, and our kids are just being roasted alive, screaming. And there was nothing we could do. Like, we couldn't stop and, like, pour water on them. We had, like, hours to go. There was no, there was no civilization. There was no help or hope. We just had to wait. We had to wait it out. And um, the things that come out of my wife and my mouth in those moments, you're just, I can't believe... That's in my soul. The, the things that happen while you wait. The things that happen while you wait. And so I want to encourage us as a church, as we are waiting, as we are in this season, what are you doing, God? Are we willing to uh, maybe close our mouths and uh, obey the Bible and be gracious and charitable to one another? I'll even say this. Uh, our family meeting today, who knows how it's going to go, but listen. Let's be gracious to one another as we're in the season of waiting. Uh, I want to close with the very last verse. Verse 18 says this. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Verse 18 is a picture of what should be our uh, posture before the Lord. David, up and about, making plans. What did he do? He went and sat. He just sat before the Lord. It's a picture of trust 
It's a picture of ceasing from action, ceasing from anxiety, ceasing from his plans. And he's just sitting and receiving the promises of God in faith. And he's receiving the kingdom of God as a gift. Church, Jesus came and he has already done the most important work. He has proven himself. Will you trust him? Will you sit before him in awe as you think on who he is and what he has promised to do for us? Jesus, we thank you for who you are. There is no one like you. Who are we, O Lord, that you would be mindful of, of a people like us, so impatient, so full of plans and anxiety and movement, maybe proud, thinking, Lord, you really need us. Lord, would we follow this great worship leader, David, in simply sitting before you in faith, in ceasing from our worries and our anxieties, and trusting that you are good, that you do fulfill your promises, that you will build your kingdom, that you are building your church, that as you came and died and rose again, you are coming again. And Lord, I ask that, um, yeah, though we, we do have work to do and we want to obey you, Jesus, and be on mission for you, Christ, Lord, right now, what we are about to do is truly the most significant thing we can do, and that's just to sit before God and worship, to sit and believe his promises, to sit and Proclaim who you are and what you have done. Lord, would you slow us down as your people, as your church? Slow us down in our plans and concerns and fix our attention onto you, Christ. There is no one like you, Jesus. You came a thousand years later as a child, as a baby boy. And you lived a perfect life and you went to the cross and you took our place. And you said, I am with you always and I will build my church. And you have a place in that. Spirit, would you steady us now in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Church, I wanna remind us um, that we have communion here and actually we're gonna do something new. For a second, um, we're going to actually do what David did for a song. And we just want to sit for a moment as a church, just sit as a discipline, as a spiritual discipline, just to sit and be still before the Lord. Um, We're going to sing this uh, hymn. You may know it, you may not know it. Just sit, be still before the Lord. And uh, as we finish that song, I'll come up and just remind us of communion and all that. So uh, let's just still our hearts and our minds right now and be still before the Lord.